step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We did it at 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. 2 p.m., New York Times, repeated at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. 3 p.m., Disability News, repeated at 11 p.m. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader on this holiday week. Hanukkah started just the other day, and of course, Christmas is on Sunday. So, enjoy the traditions that you have in your family and your traditions of friends, and get out there and have a good time. As you know, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader today is Rod Brotherton with Lucy Stone at the Master Controls. And from our studios located in the Northside branch of the Lexington Public Library, please join me for this live reading of the Herald Leader, which is donated to Radio I by its publishers. And let's take a look at what the forecast has in store for us for this next week. Today, high 34, low 21, sunny but cold. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, with a real feel of 36 degrees, high 38, low 27. Next day, high 44, low 25, cloudy. Wednesday, high 43, low 32, some brightening. And Thursday, a bit of snow, high 33, low 3. So Friday and Saturday and Sunday will be unseasonably cold. So be prepared. Looking at the Almanac, yesterday's high and low 45 and 30 compared with a normal of 46 and 30. Last year, it was 63 as a high, 49 as a low. The record high in 1984 was 70. And the record low in 1989, minus 6 degrees. Precipitation yesterday, 0. Month to date, 2.95. Normal, 2.26. Year to date, we've had 45.1 inches, when the normal being 47.9. And last year, we'd had 55.88 inches of precipitation. The record for yesterday's date, 2.59 inches in the year 2000. For the sun and the moon, the sun rose this morning at 749 and will set at 521 this afternoon. And the moon came up at 221 this morning. It will set at 158 this afternoon. 
And our weather trivia question for the day. Where do most storms enter from in the United States? Well, 60% arrive in the Pacific Northwest. Now, let's go ahead and look at the headlines for today. And local news. Mold, mice, birds, raccoon, rattle Henry Clay staff and students. As a snake and a mouse falling from the ceiling at Lexington's Henry Clay High School caused safety concerns this fall, district documents show that school officials were hit with additional infestation complaints that included more vermin, flying birds, ants, and a raccoon. Other concerns over mold, missing ceiling tiles, dilapidated furniture, and poor heat and ventilation at the building, which opened in 1970 and was renovated in 2006, were also raised in more than 350 pages of emails, inspections, and other documents obtained by the Herald-Leader under the Kentucky Open Records Act. The Herald-Leader made the request for documents on environmental issues on November 14th. On November 21st, district officials said they would need an extension until December 7th. On that day, they asked for two extra days due to the volume of redactions. The material was made available on December 9th. In late September, a snake fell from a classroom ceiling and teacher Nathaniel Spaulding posted it on social media. A mouse fell from the ceiling as well employees reported, and staff complained of cockroaches and spiders. Parents also have raised questions at the school board meetings about whether mold is making students sick. In response to the concerns raised in documents, reports and comments from parents, Fayette School Superintendent Demetrius Liggins told the Herald-Leader Wednesday that the district is committed to providing a safe, healthy, and sanitary environment for students and staff on every campus. He said he directed his staff to follow up immediately on complaints. Several of the emails obtained by the Herald-Leader were about sightings of mice. On August 26th, teacher Anhiwa El-Amin reported in an email that there were mice in room 32 and asked if traps were available. On August 31st, in an email, teacher Robert Mason said he had killed six mice near room 2 in the past week. Labor Day weekend, the district brought in exterminators and the company Terminex to assess the building and set over 200 mousetraps in an email from school administration, people said. On September 8th, teacher Renee Goyne said in an email she found a mouse in her room. September 19th, a mouse was stuck in a trap besides the achievement coach Julia Hunt's desk she told custodial staff in an email, and she noted it was alive. On September 21st, a student emailed school officials saying that classes were being interrupted by mice. And on the 22nd, a school police officer named Tim Kim Tram said in an email to district police that a mouse fell out of a ceiling into a student, causing panic in the class. On the 27th, a teacher who worked in the food labs, Lisa Chaffins, said in an email to school officials that students have not cooked in any of my classes since mouse droppings and a mouse was briefly seen in my lab. 
The mouse was swept into the dustpan and taken outside, she said. Also on September 27th, an email from a parent whose name was redacted said her child's teacher found a rodent in cooking class. On October 10th, media specialist Amanda Hurley sent an email to custodial staff saying, please bring some mouse traps to the library. We've had one running in here this morning. On October 13th, a parent whose name was redacted asked Principal Paul Little in an email for an update on the building pest situation, saying her son saw a live mouse in a stairwell. Little responded that, while the number of mice in the building appears to be declining, we are still seeing a few in the facility. Terminex was in the building checking on the progress of eliminating the mice, Little said. I have four children attending school, so I fully understand your concern, he wrote. Henry Clay is not the only school in the district with pest problems. The district gave the Herald-Leader pest control reports from Lexington's high schools for the last five years that showed Lafayette with 59 reports, and Taste Creek with 53 reports, which were more than Henry Clay's 49. Staff reported other critters in their classrooms as well, according to documents, and some were utilizing their own resources to fix the problem. In many cases, school officials arranged for testing, inspections, or other ways of addressing the environmental issues. Teacher Teresa Riley said in a September 21st email that a maggot or a tapeworm fell out of paint as students worked with it. That same day, teacher Nicole Selimperi emailed administrators regarding the black mold in the building. In a September 23rd email, staff member Ryan Queenan told a KEA representative that he had bought poison, traps, and a plug-in repellent himself. My peer tutors also told me there were three birds in the cafeteria kitchen earlier this week, and they made their way into the cafeteria, and I've been complaining about the ant infestation since 2019. At some point, we just get tired of trying, she wrote. Other teachers wrote complaints around school facilities, such as a missing tile, ceiling tiles, heating and cooling problems, and damaged items. A teacher named Amanda Lynch Drake said in a September 22nd email that there was a ceiling tile missing in room 21. I have students who are uncomfortable sitting under it for fear of mice and bugs and now snakes falling out of the ceiling, she said. In a September 27th email to Liggins and school board members, parents of a visiting future ninth grader, whose name had been redacted, said they were grossed out by the conditions of the facility. They cited the lunchroom where they said tables and chairs and floors were in horrible shape and disrepair. That same day, another unnamed parent emailed Liggins saying there was also a bird flying through the cafeteria. Yet another parent in an email asked, among other things, if the district was going to address outdated athletic facilities that are leaking and growing more mold. On October 10th, English Department Chair Tommy R. Kraft, a yearbook advisor, emailed school staff that he had one ceiling tile missing in his classroom and two are missing in the back room. He said he lost a number of past yearbooks due to water damage. 
Can the ceiling tiles be replaced with the mice and snakes? I just feel better with tiles in the ceiling, he said. On October 11th, staffer Matthew Logsdon said in an email to administrators, It's 80 in room 5. So much for the new HVAC. A senior, whose name was redacted from records, told his teachers on October 17th in an assignment that his classes had been so hot that students had to move from their current location. He said, Creatures! were roaming the halls and in classes as well. And Henry Clay High School teacher Nathan Spaulding said a baby rat snake fell from his classroom ceiling in September and landed on a desk phone. Spaulding said a mouse fell from the ceiling in another classroom. And Henry Clay is dealing with infestation problems, he said. On October 11th, uh, that, uh, no, on October 14th, email to a school district feedback account. The writer, whose name was also redacted, said there were raccoons in the school. This is not a rumor. Video attached, the email said. People also raised questions about mold in emails. In one email, Queenan said there was mold growing on the walls in her room and bathroom that 16 moderately and severely disabled students used. On September 28th, a parent whose name was redacted in an email told Liggins that she thought mold at Henry Clay was making her two sons sick. In a September 29th email, Jeff Harris, a risk management staffer, said tests showed there was no persistent water problem and no serious mold problem. In late November, Parents asked the Fayette County School Board to determine whether the air quality at Henry Clay High School is making kids sick. Two parents told the Fayette County Public School Board that the district should release an air quality report that was conducted at the school. Two reports from outside inspectors were ultimately released. One on October 10th said air samples measured within normal limits. Two rooms had suspect conditions, but the report recommended a wait-and-see approach because the HVAC ductwork was going to be cleaned. The report noted, however, that the California Department of Health maintains that water damage, visible mold, and dampness was unhealthy. A November 17th report said air samples measured within normal limits. The testers only made basic building maintenance recommendations. But the report also said the appearance of stained ceiling tiles, even when the air is not affected, only promotes concerns by occupants. In a Herald Leader interview this week, Donna Florence, one of the parents who has has expressed concerns to the Fayette County Public School Board, said, We have more questions than we have answers. There needs to be transparency in fixing this problem for the betterment of everybody. We have a huge problem at Henry Clay, Florence told school board members at a Thursday night's meeting. She said that rooms should have been retested for mold were not. Florence said it should be the district's number one priority to replace this school that is no longer functional and is no longer able to be maintained or made safe for our kids. Recognizing that building conditions can vary depending on the age of the structure, and its major components, Ligon said, they have standards for cleanliness, 
function and comfort that must be met. He said he was very concerned about the reports he received about environmental issues at Henry Clay High School a few months ago and directed his staff to follow up immediately. However, independent inspections by exterminators and air quality specialists confirmed Henry Clay did not have a pest control problem or issue with mold in the building, Ligon said. Henry Clay High School is a dated building in need of major renovations or replacement in the coming years, which is why it was identified as one of the top priority projects in the 2021 district facilities plan, he said. In the meantime, district officials have made some significant investments to improve conditions, including an $8 million HVAC overhaul and replacement currently in the final stages of completion, Ligon said. A major renovation of Henry Clay High School is one of 15 projects included as immediate priorities on the current district facilities plan, Liggins said in a September email. And here's some interesting news. Lex Park raising rates and will charge for Saturday parking. It's going to cost more to park come January 3rd. And Lexington residents will have to pay to park on weekends and on set on weeknights and on Saturdays according to Friday's announcement. This is the first rate increase since 2019. And it's the first time the parking authority has changed enforcement hours since 2008 when the city turned over all parking to the parking authority. The Lexington Parking Authority, which oversees metered parking and four public parking garages, announced the new rates on Friday. It will also extend metered parking enforcement times from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Currently, metered parking is from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekends and free on weekdays and free on weekends. The average, the metered parking increases will be 30 cents. Those parking rates depend on how long someone parks and in what part of the city. A sample of the metered rate increases, areas that are currently 50 cents an hour, will now be 75 cents an hour. Areas that are currently $1 an hour will now be $1.50 an hour. And areas that are currently $1.50 an hour will now be $2 an hour. The rate adjustment was uh, delivered by the parking as part as a 6% sales tax added to all parking starting January 1st. The new sales tax affects all parking authorities across Kentucky. Louisville's Parking Authority announced a similar parking rate increase earlier this month. Lex Park's revenues also plummeted in 2020, 2021, and the first part of 2022 during the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Many office workers started working from home. That also meant fewer fewer visitors to downtown businesses, said Gary Means, the executive director of Lexpark. The pandemic hit us hard with $3.2 million in losses, Means said. 
In addition, a few years ago, the city gave multiple streets to the University of Kentucky in a swap for land for a new industrial park. Lex Park lost more than $300,000 a year because it no longer gets revenue from those meters, Mean said. Meanwhile, the cost to maintain Lex Park's garages, including the Helix Garage on Main Street, the Victorian Square Garage on Short Street, the Courthouse Garages, and the Transit Center Garages continue to eat into Lex Park's revenues. It has spent more than $11 million to date fixing and updating those garages, mainly for safety reasons. Those garages need an additional $2.5 million in work in coming years, Mean said. Everyone's expenses have gone up. So has ours, Mean said. We have to pay people a lot more to keep them. Everything that we order or purchase has gone up. Downtown parking in the early evenings has surpassed pre-pandemic levels. However, revenues generated from daytime parking continue to lag as not all office workers have returned, he said. Revenue from daytime parking is about 20% less than it was in 2019. Means says he knows that many restaurants and shops downtown will not be happy with the changes, particularly paid parking on Saturdays. Most cities of similar size to Lexington have charged for parking on Saturday for years, he said. A survey of 30 cities in varying sizes nationwide showed only one city that does not enforce meters on Saturday, according to a written release from the parking authority. Even with the increases in rates, Lexington parking rates will still be lower than most cities of similar size, Means said. The highest meter rates in the Lexington area will now be $2 an hour, which puts Lexington at the same maximum rate as the University of Kentucky, Charleston, South Carolina, Madison, Wisconsin, and Portland, Maine. Maximum rates in Louisville are $2.25 an hour. Cincinnati's maximum rate is $2.50 an hour. Carlo Vacoreza who owns Frank and Dino's on Short Street, called the change a disgrace, but said it wouldn't be a huge hit to his restaurant because he offers valet parking. Still, one way or the other, this will impact us and the other restaurants in downtown. Instead of embracing the people who come to downtown Lexington, we're chasing them away. Kevin Heathcote, one of the orders of Bourbon in Toulouse, which has its location on Euclid Avenue and South Broadway and the Chevy Chase Inn, said parking is already difficult in Chevy Chase. It's 3.20 p.m. on a Friday, and there is only one open parking space on this block, Heathcote said. Heathcote said he chose the Chevy Chase neighborhood because it and other areas like Jefferson Street and National Avenue are unique in making Lexington interesting. The timing couldn't be worse, Heathcote said. COVID closed a lot of independent restaurants and businesses. The industry is still trying to get back on its feet. It's nice for Lex Park to announce this today with no warning, Heathcote said. Debbie Long of Dudley's on Short echoed Heathcote's comments. 
Dudley's is located on Short Street in the heart of downtown Lexington. Parking is a perennial problem downtown, she said. Dudley's offers valet parking to help ease customers' concerns about finding parking downtown. Increasing enforcement on weekend nights and Saturdays is going to deter people from frequenting downtown businesses, she said. They should not be making it more difficult for people to park, Long said. If we make it more expensive, people won't come. Means said with paid parking in the evenings, it will likely create more turnover so more people can find places to park. Many people come downtown, find a metered space, and don't leave. Moreover, for those working at downtown restaurants and bars, the parking authority has a special hospitality rate at its garages for those people who park after 3 p.m. It's $20 a month, he said. Lexpark has had to raise rates twice over the past decade. Those rate increases have not translated into loss of business. In fact, downtown Lexington has become more vibrant over the past decade, he said. Lexpark estimates the 6% sales tax will generate more than $225,000 to $250,000 in revenues to state coffers. I wish I could say it was going to infrastructure or road paving, but it will likely go to the state general fund, he said. The parking authority is separate from the city. It does not receive taxpayer money. And finally on the front page, January 6th panel wrapping up probe into Trump and the, quote, attempted coup. The House committee investigating the Capitol riot will make its final public presentation Monday about the effort by Donald Trump to overturn the results of the presidential election he lost in 2020. The committee has called it an attempted coup and is poised to decide Monday whether to refer Trump and several advisors to the Justice Department for criminal charges in the deadly insurrection. That is expected to be the committee's closing argument as it wraps up a year-and-a-half-long inquiry and prepares to release a final report detailing its findings about the insurrection in the nation's capital on January 6, 2021, as Congress was certifying Joe Biden's presidential victory. The committee of seven Democrats and two Republicans is set to dissolve at the end of the year. Monday's meeting will be the committee's 11th public session since forming in July 2021. Here's what to watch for the Monday's meeting, which begins at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The committee is expected to make both criminal and civil referrals against former president and his allies who, according to lawmakers, broke the law or committed ethical violations. The committee's chairman, Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, said the referrals may include criminal, ethics violations, legal misconduct, and campaign finance violations. Lawmakers have suggested in particular that their recommended charges against Trump could include conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, and insurrection. Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, said Sunday that he believes Trump committed multiple crimes 
pointing specifically to insurrection, Schiff said that if you look at Donald Trump's acts and you match them up against the statute, it's a pretty good match. This is someone who in multiple ways tried to pressure state officials to find votes that didn't exist. This is someone who tried to interfere with a joint session, even inciting a mob to attack the Capitol, Schiff told CNN's State of the Union. It will fall to federal prosecutors to decide whether to bring charges. Even though they are non-binding, the recommendations by the committee would add to the political pressure on the Justice Department as its special counsel, Jack Smith, conducts an investigation into January 6th and Trump's actions. The committee on Monday could also make ethics referrals involving fellow lawmakers. We will also be considering what's the appropriate remedy for members of Congress who ignore a congressional subpoena, as well as the evidence that was so pertinent to our investigation, and why we wanted to bring them in, Schiff said. We have weighed what is the remedy for members of Congress. Is it a criminal referral to another branch of government, or is it better that Congress police its own? He said the committee considered censure and ethics referrals and will be disclosing their decision Monday. Lawmakers who did not comply with subpoenas from the January 6th committee include House Representative Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy of California and GOP Representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Mo Brooks of Alabama. Lawmakers have promised that Monday's session will include a preview of the committee's final report expected to be released Wednesday. The panel will vote on adopting the official record, effectively authorizing the release of the report to the public. The eight-chapter report will include hundreds of pages of findings about the attack and any Trump effort to subvert democracy, drawing on what the committee learned through its interviews with more than 1,000 witnesses. It will roughly mirror the series of public hearings the committee held in the summer, including the role of extremist groups and the violence on January 6th, Trump's attempt to enlist the Justice Department in his schemes, and Trump's coordination with GOP lawmakers to overturn the election results. Additional evidence, including video footage and testimony the committee collected, is expected to be released publicly before the end of the year. As the committee convenes one final time, a major legislative response to the insurrection could be on the fast-tracked passage. Lawmakers are expected to overhaul the arcane election law that Trump tried to subvert after his 2020 election defeat by including legislative changes in a year-end spending bill. A group of bipartisan lawmakers has been working on the Electoral Count Act since the insurrection Trump and his allies tried to find loopholes in that the law of the law before the congressional certification of the 2020 vote as the former president worked to overturn his defeat to Biden and unsuccessfully pressure Vice President Mike Pence to go along. The bill, if passed, would amend the 19th century law that, along with the Constitution, governs how states and Congress certify electors and declare presidential election winners. 
ensuring the popular vote from each state is protected from manipulation and that Congress does not arbitrarily decide presidential elections. The committee is also expected to release its own legislative proposals with ideas for how to strengthen and expand the guardrails that protected the Electoral College certification in 2021. After conducting thousands of interviews ranging from Trump cabinet secretaries to members of his own family and obtaining tens of thousands of documents, congressional investigators say they have created the most comprehensive look at the worst attack on the Capitol in two centuries. But the 16-month investigation has also provided a roadmap of sorts for criminal investigations influencing the probes of Trump and January 6th that are progressing at the local, state, and federal level. There is some question whether the Justice Department will act with Trump announced as a 2024 presidential candidate. Schiff expressed worry on Sunday that federal prosecutors may be slow to move on charges as long as Trump is politically relevant. I think he should face the same remedy, force of law, that anyone else would, Schiff said. Still, Monday's session remains the last word for the committee and its temporary or select committee status as it expires at the end of the current Congress. Once Republicans take the majority next year, they are not expected to renew the committee, instead launching investigations that will focus on the Biden administration and the president's family. And now it's time to turn to the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location if it is given. Today's obituary index starts with Richard Joseph Baker, 83, of Moorhead. Doris Elizabeth Oliver Brenda Irvin, 93, of Danville. Connie Lynn Brock, 64, Barberville. Ruby Collins, 88, Richmond. Corey Conley, 49, Paris. Joseph Irvin Couch, 86, Lexington. Robert L. Gill, 80, London. Terry Lynn Hollifield, 53, Hazard. Juanita Marie Hyatt, 81, Moorhead. Marvin Johnson, 88, Paris. The Reverend Ollie Sherman Long, 94, Mount Sterling. Sherry D. Miller, 68, Hazard. Maurice Reese Moore, 39, Lexington. Jeff Junebug Rose Jr., 63 of Campton. Carl Dickie Sloan, 74 of Campton. William Leroy Spaulding, 72, Lebanon. Stephen Lyle Steve Thomas, 69 of Bardstown. Sandra Jean Thompson, 55 of London. And Barbara Sue Taylor Wilson, 65 of also of London. If you would like any further information about any of the obituaries today, please visit the website legacy.com slash obituaries slash Kentucky. And now you can call us at our Radio I studios at 859-422-6390 and we'll try to read them to you over the phone. 
And now, with the request of our listeners, we'll read Paul Prather's weekly column. It is entitled, Christians Have an Easy Answer to Cancel Culture. All the culture war alarms went clang, clang, clanging into the night after a Richmond, Virginia restaurant recently refused service to the Family Foundation, a conservative Christian organization. According to multiple news reports, the staff at Metzger Bar and Butchery decided at the 11th hour to cancel the Family Foundation's reservations for a group event because of the Foundation's stances against same-sex marriage and abortion rights. A Family Foundation official described the decision as alarming and disgraceful, a clear case of religious discrimination. The restaurant, for its part, said on social media it denied service to the group to protect its staff, many of whom are women or members of the LGBTQ plus community. To me, the kerfuffle mirrored similar refusals elsewhere by conservative Christians to make cakes or offer other services to LGBTQ plus customers. A case regarding the legality of that is pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. It concerns a Colorado website designer who won't make same-sex wedding sites. It's not my intention here to adjudicate such matters, whether businesses can legally discriminate against Christians or whether Christians can legally discriminate against those whose lifestyles don't align with their religious beliefs. I'll leave that to the Supreme Court and the Court of Public Opinion. No, what caught my attention in the Virginia situation was something else. To wit, how should Christians, such as those in the Family Foundation, respond when they believe they've been treated shabbily? One problem with being a Christian is that our faith demands we act differently in the face of perceived slights than the population at large might be expected to act. Well, that's hard to do. Trust me. We're to turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse us. Love our enemies. Never repay evil for evil. Let our speech always be seasoned with salt. After 45 years as a believer, I still struggle with that every day. Every blessed day. I get it wrong about as often as I get it right. As readers are eager to point out, I preach non-judgmentalism one week, for instance, and the next snarkily judge in print, no less, guys who drive what one wag described as UHVs, unnecessarily huge vehicles. So there you have it. If I were faced with Family Foundation situation vis-a-vis Metzger Bar and Butchery, would I follow the advice I'm about to offer? (laughs) Your guess is as good as mine. I sure hope I would. Possibly, I wouldn't. In any case, here's what would have been a true Christian response to the Virginia restaurant. It might have been framed in an open letter to the management and staff. To all those who work at Metzger Bar and Butchery, we owe each of you an abject, heartfelt apology. We're sorry we've offended you and left you feeling threatened by us. And we have no excuses. We blame ourselves, not you. 
We ask for your forgiveness if you feel inclined to give it. But whether or not you forgive us, we're still guilty and we're still sorry. Clearly, our options and religious beliefs about key matters differ from yours. Disagreement itself is okay. We live in a country where all are free to believe as they might. We're free, but you're equally free. We all have the same right to petition the government. Disagreements can, can even be productive. Where we've clearly erred, however, is that we've expressed our views in a manner that strikes you as ill-willed and hateful. That being so, we failed. We serve a Lord who commands us to welcome even those with whom we disagree. We're to be gracious to every man, woman, or child, every transgendered person, every political opponent, every race, kindred, and tongue. Due to the simple and yet profound fact that God has showered his own heartbreaking grace on us. Those who've received grace must always be quick to extend grace. It's an expression of our gratitude. By all indications, we've failed miserably at that. What we'd like to do, if you'd accept it, is this. Instead of rescheduling our event elsewhere, we'd like to donate the money we would have spent at Metzger Bar and Butchery, plus an extra 25% tip above the usual large group gratuity, to your staff for their personal use. Please accept this as our Christmas gift to each of you individually. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, please use the money for whatever in whatever way you see fit. Donate it to an LGBTQ plus or pro-choice legislation organization if you'd like with our blessings. We love you, and in the future, we'll try to do better. In all likelihood, we'll still disagree with you about key matters, but with God's help, we'll do so more kindly and humbly, recognizing that we could be the ones who are wrong. Sincerely, your friends at the Family Foundation. And as you know, Paul Prather is a pastor of Bethesda Church near Mount Sterling. And you can email him at pratpd at yahoo.com. Now turning back to the news, Kentucky State Pension System's former investment chief claims embezzlement in a lawsuit. Stephen Herbert, the former chief investment officer for Kentucky State's pension system, filed a whistleblower lawsuit against the agency Friday, alleging he was fired for drawing attention to the embezzlement of millions of dollars. They hired him to come up here and look and see if they were making proper investments with the pension money, and that's what he did, said Thomas E. Clay, the former CIO's attorney. The $22 billion Kentucky Public Pensions Authority contests Herbert's claims filed in Franklin Circuit Court. The suit contains demonstrably false allegations. KPPA regrets that it will be forced to spend resources to defend against Mr. Herbert's lawsuit, but we're confident in our defense of the claims he has asserted, KPPA Executive Director David Eager said. Herbert worked for KPPA from January 2021 until last May 31st. 
He previously was Chief Operating Officer for Florida-based Augustine Asset Management. After Herbert started at KPPA, according to the suit, he immediately had concerns about a subsidiary, Perimeter Park West, which owns the Pension Systems Office Complex on Louisville Road in Frankfurt. Perimeter Park West failed to pay millions of dollars in dividends it owed to the pension system over a period of years, according to the suit. When plaintiff inquired about the missing funds, he was told by KPPA General Counsel Victoria Hale that Crumball Properties had embezzled the funds, according to the suit. Crumball Properties of Frankfurt at that time had a contract with Perimeter Park West to clean and maintain KPPA's offices, Clay said. Under the terms of its contract, Crumball Properties was supposed to return an unspent portion of its money as dividends, Clay said. Crumball Properties did not immediately return a call seeking comment on Friday. When plaintiff suggested legal action against Crumball Properties, his suggestion was denied because of Crumball's connection with the court system in Franklin County, according to the suit. The suit offers no further explanation for that comment. Herbert continued to ask why Perimeter Park West's books didn't balance, encouraged in part by an inquiry from a trustee for the county, county employees' retirement system who expressed concerns about funds being wired out of the retirement trust to external depository accounts without proper accountability, according to the suit. Earlier this year, Herbert discovered that Perimeter Park West's financial statements reported an accumulated deficit, which, when combined with other accounting irregularities, caused the need for a balancing entry, e.g. plug, of over $10 million. This appears to be directly linked to the theft perpetrated by Crumball Properties, according to the suit. An internal KPPA audit from 2019 corroborated Herbert's concerns that Crumball Properties had potentially misappropriated or stolen funds over several years, according to the suit. A more recent audit by Blue & Company, LLC, confirmed that there were irregularities in the handling of pension funds, according to the suit. On October 5, 2021, according to the suit, Herbert wrote a memo expressing concerns about money that was leaving retirement trust fund accounts for external bank accounts without the oversight of the KPPA Board of Trustees. Eager, the KPPA Executive Director, then sent him an email instructing him not to discuss the matter further with trustees unless Eager approved such communication, according to the suit. Plaintiff received what appeared to be a termination letter on May 31, 2022, signed by Executive Director Eager, stating the action was being taken without cause, according to the suit. The action taken by KPPA executives related to tens of millions of dollars which were transferred by wire in and out of custody on a regular basis, with tens of millions of dollars sitting in external depository accounts outside the trust, with transactions which do not balance two transactions according to the suit. 
Herbert has since returned to Florida, his lawyer said. Perimeter Park West has made headlines before. In 2015, the state auditor issued a report accusing the state pension system of improperly using $700,000 of its medical insurance money on an ill-advised real estate deal, one that involved improper mingling of funds, a lack of basic investment research, and internal conflicts of interest. The pension system, in 2006, bought a 1.9-acre property next to its Frankfurt offices for $752,000 three months after a local veterinarian paid $450,000 for it. KRS later sold the land to the Kentucky State Police for $325,000. To buy the property, the pension system listed the money on its books as an unsecured loan to Perimeter Park West. Most of the loan was forgiven four months later, although Perimeter Park West had the assets to repay the loan. Several top state pension officials resigned retired shortly after the land deal was made public. And next, North Korea fires two missiles capable of reaching Japan. North Korea on Sunday test-fired a pair of ballistic missiles with the potential range of striking Japan in a possible protest to Tokyo's adoption of a new security strategy to push for more offensive footing against North Korea and China. The launches came two days after the North claimed to have performed a key test needed to build a more mobile, powerful, intercontinental ballistic missile designed to strike the U.S. mainland. The two missiles traveled from the country's northwest Tongranji area, about 310 miles, to at a maximum altitude of 340 miles before landing in the waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan, according to South Korean and Japanese governments. South Korea's military described both missiles as medium-range weapons that were launched at a steep angle, suggesting they could have traveled further if fired at a standard trajectory. North Korea usually tests medium- and longer-range missiles at a high angle to avoid neighboring countries. Though it fired an intermediate-range missile over Japan in October, forcing Tokyo to issue evacuation alerts and halt trains. In an emergency meeting, top South Korean security officials deplored North Korea's continued provocations that they said came in despite the plight of its citizens moaning in hunger and cold due to a serious food shortage. They said South Korea, will boost trilateral security cooperation with the United States and Japan, according to South Korea's presidential office. Japanese Vice Defense Minister Toshiro Ino separately criticized North Korea for threatening the safety of Japan, the region, and the international community. The U.S. Indo-Pacific Command said the launch highlights the stabilization impact of North Korea's unlawful weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs. It said the U.S. commitments to the defense of South Korea and Japan remain ironclad. 
Some observers say North Korea might have tested a newly developed medium-range missile that can still reach Japan. On Friday, the Japanese government adopted a national security strategy that would allow it to carry out preemptive strikes and double its military spending to give itself more offensive footing against threats from neighboring China and North Korea. That was a major break from its strictly self-defense-only post-war principle. The Japanese strategy names China as the biggest strategic challenge before North Korea and Russia to Japan's efforts to ensure peace, safety, and stability. Japan's defense minister said Sunday it detected a fleet of five Chinese warships, including an aircraft carrier off the southern Japanese island of Okaidojima, the previous day. Ministry officials said fighter jets and helicopters were engaging in takeoff and landing exercises on the Chinese carrier, and that Japan responded by scrambling fighter jets and dispatching a destroyer. And the next story, governments move closer to deal at biodiversity conference. There were signs Sunday that negotiators were closing in on a deal at a U.N. conference that would protect nature and provide financing to help set up protected areas and restore degraded ecosystems. China, which holds the presidency at the U.N. Biodiversity Conference, or COP15, released a draft deal that calls for protecting 30% of the most important global land and marine areas by 2030. Currently, 17% of terrestrial and 10% of marine areas are protected. The draft also calls for raising $200 billion by 2030 for biodiversity and working to phase out or reform subsidies that could provide another $500 billion for nature. As part of that, it calls to increase to at least $20 billion annually, or by some estimates, triple the amount that goes to poor countries by 2025. That number would increase to $30 billion each year by 2030. The draft was set to go to a meeting of all governments Sunday evening and could be adopted soon after. Today, the world's countries rose to the occasion and produced a historic draft that agrees to protect at least 30% of our planet. Enric Sala, National Geographic reporter and resident and pristine seas founder, said in a statement, Now we just need to maintain the political will to get this ambitious thing across the finish line without diminishing its scope. World leaders must remain committed to bold action in Montreal, the ministers and government officials from about 190 countries mostly agree that protecting biodiversity has to be a priority. With many coming, those efforts to climate talks that wrapped up last month in Egypt. Climate change coupled with habitat loss, pollution, and development have hammered the world's biodiversity with one estimate in 2019 warning that a million plant and animal species face extinction within, extinction within decades, a rate of loss of a thousand times greater than expected. Humans use about 50,000 wild spe species routinely, and one out of five of the world's eight billion people depend on those species for food and income, the report said. 
But the meeting members have struggled for nearly two weeks to agree on what the protection looks like and who will pay for it. The financing has been among the most contentious issues, with delegates from 70 African, South American, and Asian countries walking out of negotiations Wednesday, and they returned several hours later. Brazil, speaking for developing countries during the week, said in a statement that a new funding mechanism dedicated to biodiversity should be established and that developed countries provide $100 billion annually in financial grants to emerging economies until 2030. And next, Arctic air to blast much of the U.S. just before Christmas. Forecasters are warning of treacherous holiday travel and life-threatening cold for much of the nation as an Arctic air mass blows into the already frigid southern United States. We're looking at much below normal temperatures, potentially record low temperatures leading up to Christmas holidays, said Zach Taylor, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. The rare and hazardous Arctic air mass will likely bring extreme and prolonged freezing conditions for southern Mississippi and northeast Louisiana, the National Weather Service said in a special weather statement on Sunday. By Thursday night, temperatures will plunge as low as 13 degrees in Jackson, Mississippi, and around 5 degrees in Nashville, Tennessee, the National Weather Service predicts. The incoming Arctic air arrives as an earlier storm system in the northeastern U.S. gradually winds down after burying parts of the region under two feet of snow. More than 80,000 customers in New England were still without power on Sunday morning, according to poweroutage.us, which tracks outages across the country. For much of the U.S., the winter weather will get worse before it gets better. The coming week will be strong and the potential for a significant winter storm across the eastern two-thirds of the United States during the second half of the week, just before Christmas, according to the latest forecast from the Federal Weather Prediction Center in College Park, Maryland. The main weather story that will make weather headlines next week will be the massive expanse frigid temperatures from the northern Rockies and northern plains to the Midwest through the middle of the week and then reaching the Gulf Coast and much of the eastern U.S. by Friday and into the weekend, the Weather Prediction Center warned. An extremely strong Arctic front will usher in the coldest air of the season by a considerable margin with the expectation of widespread sub-zero readings for overnight lows from the northern Rockies to the central northern plains and the upper Midwest, reaching as far south as northern Oklahoma and southern Missouri. In Atlanta, where the low temperature was expected to drop below freezing early Monday morning, forecasters warned of even colder air by later in the week, according to the National Weather Service office in Peachtree Center, Georgia. The low Friday night in Atlanta will be around 13 degrees, 
with the high temperature on Saturday still below the freezing mark at around 29 degrees, the Weather Service projects. Florida will not have a white Christmas, but forecasters are expecting that weekend to be unusually cold throughout the state. Northern Florida cities such as Jacksonville, Tallahassee, and Pensacola have predicted lows in the low 20s on Christmas Eve, with highs of only about 40. Orlando and Tampa are not expected to break 50 on Christmas Eve, and even Miami isn't expected to get out of the 50s. And this concludes the reading for the Lexington Herald Leader for today, Monday, December 19th. Your reader's been Rod Brotherton with Lucy Stone on the Master Controls. Now, thank you for listening. And now, please stay tuned for sports news right here on Radio I. Now it's time for the sports news for Monday, December 19, 2022. And your reader today is Richard Lucas. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. And the featured article on page 1B of the Lexington Herald-Leader is entitled, We're Better Than This, Calipari Says After UCLA Loss, by Ben Roberts. That it was even a game in the second half was a minor miracle for Kentucky. In the end, it didn't really matter. The number 13-ranked Wildcats suffered yet another loss to a big-name opponent, falling 63-53 to number 16 UCLA in Madison Square Gardens in New York on Saturday. Following a first half in which the Bruins nearly ran away from UK and forced John Calipari to make some drastic changes to his lineup, when Oscar Shibway stepped to the line to try and finish an and one play with 14 minutes, 26 seconds left, a free throw that would have given Kentucky a 41-40 lead. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.